Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman. I'm the LAP Field Coordinator, and I am here today with Nora Bergman and Chelsea Castro. Nora Bergman is a business coach, author, and creator of the 50 Lessons for Lawyers book series. 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers is the third book in the 50 Lessons for Lawyers series. She's a licensed attorney since 1992. Nora's coached individual lawyers and worked with law firms across the country for over 15 years. And Chelsea Castro holds a master's degree in clinical social work and has trained thousands of lawyers, judges, and law students in evidence-based stress management techniques. Prior to her psychotherapy practice, Chelsea was an attorney in international development and international regulatory compliance. And we will definitely link the information to 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers in the show notes so you can check that out. Nora and Chelsea, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Candice. Thanks for having us. We heard a little bit about your background. I'm just curious, how did you guys meet and start working on this book together? This book, 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers, began back in 2016, 2017 as 50 Lessons for Mindful Lawyers. We started that project. I started that project and that project got shelved for the second book, which was 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers from Women Lawyers. And once that project was done, I came back to this mindfulness concept and thought that it really needed to be expanded upon because being mindful is something that we talk about in this book, but it is the focus of one of the lessons in this book because I really wanted to focus on the well-being of the whole individual. And as I started getting back into this book, I attended a training that Chelsea did and it was on burnout, if I recall. It was extremely well done. She just really impressed me. And after that seminar, I reached out to her and that kind of evolved into us getting to know each other a little bit. And I asked her if she would consider co-authoring the book with me, which she graciously agreed to do. Interestingly, I'm in Florida, Chelsea's in Illinois, and we've never actually met each other in person. And that might happen this year though, I think. Oh, wow. That's exciting. And Chelsea, what led you to give that talk on burnout? Prior to starting my own consulting firm, I was with the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. And through my work there, I had started doing a lot of continuing legal education around mental health. Having seen the need for this, I once I struck out on my own, I continued to offer that as a service. I get contacted by law firms, bar associations, tech companies, things like that, who want to provide these services to the lawyers who are either their customers or members of their organizations. And I happened to be working uh, with a particular tech company, and it was like a perfect meeting of the minds. I love when the universe puts yeah. people and ideas together, like it brought you all together. Agreed. <laughs> and Nora, what started you on even starting this series of books? Because you were in the, the practice of law, and then how did you transition into getting to authoring? The abbreviated version was I practiced law for about seven years. I was a litigator, federal employment law discrimination, and I didn't enjoy it. 
So I wanted to make a, a shift in my career and I had the opportunity to become the executive director of a bar association here in Florida, a regional bar association, which I was thrilled to do because it allowed me to leave the active practice of law yet stay connected to my legal community and all the lawyers that I knew. And while I was in that role, the thing that I loved most about it was having the opportunity to develop programs for lawyers to help them live better lives. And this is back in the early 2000s. While we offered CLE and substantive courses and things of that nature, I really enjoyed focusing on things that were outside the substantive practice of law, time management, client development, some of the things I coach my clients on now. I was in that role for about seven years as well and was recruited to start coaching lawyers. I'm affiliated with a company called Atticus, which has been coaching lawyers for 25 years. And in 2006, I made the shift to start doing the work that I'm doing now, client coaching uh, with Atticus. And the thing that I loved most about that executive director role was the ability to help other lawyers. I took that piece of what I did as an executive director, kind of made it all that I do as a lawyer coach. And when I started coaching, I started writing. I'm a journalism major from undergrad work, and I've always really enjoyed writing. And I, around 2015, I got this idea of taking some of my blog posts and putting them into a book. And that's how the first book, 50 Lessons for Lawyers, came to be. There are three, I think we mentioned in the series, that first book came out in 2016. And it kind of covers a lot of topics, mainly the topics that I coach my clients on, time management, client development, leadership, uh, building your staff, and touches on some areas of wellness and well-being and happiness too. The second book, 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers, I collaborated with 49 other women lawyers. We all wrote a lesson for the book, lots of different perspectives on the law and careers advice and things of that nature. And then this book focuses solely on the concept of how can we be happy? We, are, we know that there are statistics that show that lawyers suffer from depression at, at high levels, and especially through the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. So our book, I think, is focused on what we can actually do to live happier, healthier, more resilient lives. Well, I really love that you can tell it's intensely geared towards helping people put practical solutions and skills in their life. Just from the way the book is set up, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the structure. I think that might be in some of your other books as well, but the way you've kind of structured the chapters with action items and the way they interplay with each other. When I wrote the first book, my goal was to help the people who read that book I viewed them as my clients, the way I would talk to my clients. Here are things that you can do to improve your skills. I will often say to my clients, I make suggestions, you make decisions. I don't try to tell people what to do because everybody's different. You've got to kind of find your own way. That first book was designed to provide resources. And then at the end of every lesson, there's a section in that book and in this book called Living the Lesson. And that section at the end of each lesson gives you suggestions on how you can take what you just read and actually do it. One of my other goals with these books was to write the lessons so that they are short. You can get that knowledge quickly and you can begin to apply it quickly. And none of these books are books that you have to read from cover to cover or sequentially. You can pick up the book, find a lesson that resonates with you, read it, 
Candice, you mentioned that, yes, some of the lessons refer back to other lessons. And I found that to be especially true in this book with Chelsea, because there are so many of these different concepts that build on each other. We really kind of encourage you to jump around in the book. That's actually what Nora's referring to in the structure of the book is one of the things that really attracted me to working on the project with her. As a therapist, and as you mentioned, I'm a CLD presenter as well, I think leaving people with actionable items is super important, not just for getting value out of, let's say, an hour-long training or a book, but even in, in a therapeutic sense, we need to equip people to make those choices. A lot of self-help books out there, unfortunately, while they provide excellent information, don't bridge the gap between providing that information and then providing guidance on how to execute so that you get the benefits of it. And I really liked that about how Nora envisioned the book and had done her past books. For me, there's a lot of value in even just the structure of the book. It's really intended for real life practice. That definitely resonates with me because I think like a lot of other people, I've got kids, I got a job, I've got a to-do list of a hundred things in my head. It's great. I love you know, reading new information, I'm not going to retain it unless I'm going to use it. And these skills are really easy to slide into other daily tasks and rituals. I like how you started talking about happiness in the beginning. I liked it because again, I don't have a whole lot of free time to read things unless there's a buy-in for me. And I like this paragraph because it shows it, it goes along with all this new research we have on neuroplasticity and the fact that we can change our brains. So now I have buy-in that, all right, I'm going to read these things and these new skills because I do have that hope of affecting change. And y'all said, you know, 50% of our happiness is rooted in genetics. Circumstances, what happens to us, account for only about 10% of our happiness. That remaining 40% of our happiness in life is determined by our intentional activity. And so we can increase the level of happiness in our lives by intentionally doing these things to make us feel happy. That just started me out in the book with like a big dose of hope. What do you envision the definition of happiness is? How do y'all couch that term? I love that quote that you just read. And I want to share that that quote comes from a book by a woman named Sonia Liebermierski. And the book's titled The How of Happiness. She shares some tremendous research in that book all about how we can intentionally increase our level of happiness. Dr. Liebermierski is affiliated with the Greater Good Science Center in Berkeley, California which is one of our partners in this book and who's going to be receiving some of the proceeds from this book. They do fantastic work there. And you do a great job, I think, of incorporating a lot of different contributors' research in a really seamless way. When we're talking about happiness, what are we talking about? How are y'all defining the term happiness? Let me say one thing and then we hand it over to Chelsea. To me, happiness is defined by the person. You can go into the dictionary and read a definition of happiness. And generally it's around, you know, sense of feeling good and well-being and that kind of thing. But when people ask me that question, I think about, I think it was Justice Stewart in one of his opinions talking about a topic said, I know it when I see it. In a case called Jacob Ellis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he was talking about pornography, okay? But happiness is kind of like that. It's different for every person, but you know it when you feel it. You know it when you feel it. And it's probably, uh, there are some 
similar components. And I guess I would say shift it over to Chelsea to talk about the, the world of psychology and, and how we might define it. But for me, it's, you know, you feel it. Well, Nora's right on point with that. From the psychological sciences standpoint, it's what we call subjective well-being. We can talk about well-being and wellness from a more objective standpoint, looking at you know the, the bio data, right? And your behavior out in the world whether you choose helpful or unhelpful or un- or healthy or unhealthy choices. Those are things we can measure by you know, third-party metrics, but that doesn't tell us about how the person is experiencing their life. So that's where subjective well-being, AKA happiness comes in. How are you perceiving your experience of the positive emotions? How are you perceiving your experience of the negative emotions, both of which are healthy to have, and we as humans need to have both, but how are you perceiving the experience of them? And then overall, there's, I mean, it's obviously this is a nebulous subject, but researchers try to get it as clear as possible, looking at positive emotions, negative emotions, and then general life satisfaction. Essentially, it's about are you working towards, or do you feel like you can work towards and meet the goals slash desires slash needs that you set for yourself. And if we have a healthy balance of those three categories, then it's measured to be a healthy level of subjective well-being. If you experience your emotions as primarily negative, if you experience your life situation as one in which you can't meet your needs, you can't meet your goals, then it's going to be a low level of subjective well-being, regardless of what your actual health is like, of what your actual finances are like, of what your actual family situation is like. So happiness really boils down to how you are perceiving your own situation. That doesn't mean that finances, structural racism, oppression, politics, they don't have play a role here. But if we're really just asking what is happiness, happiness has a lot to do with how we view our own experience. I love that term subjective well-being. Yeah. And if I could just follow up on something that Chelsea was just saying about positive and negative emotion, they do all have a place. And we talk in very early on in the book that when we talk about 50 lessons for happy lawyers, we are not talking about toxic positivity. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it essentially says that, you know, toxic positivity is a sense of, oh, I'm just not going to pay attention to anything that might be negative or reject the negative things in my life or pretend like they're not there. And sometimes we do that as much to other people when they're talking to us or sharing with us, like downplaying things that might be negative in their life. And we do that with ourselves too. So we are not talking about toxic positivity. The analogy that we give in the book is if you have a garden, and you have weeds in your garden, toxic positivity would tell you, just ignore the weeds. Pretend like they're not there. They're only weeds. Happiness and being proactive would say, hey, I have weeds in my garden. I'm going to go take care of those weeds and get them out of my garden. Not necessarily good or bad, but I just wanted to make sure that that piece was clear because we, some people have asked me about that. Why aren't you just talking about toxic positivity? No, we're not. Sure. We're not trying to pretend it's Disneyland in our head all the time. Right. Yeah, because it ain't. <laughs> yeah. Love that term, subjective well-being. And thinking about that, man, it's so hard sometimes, like your chapters, to separate all of these concepts. Because when I hear you talking about happiness, 
the two chapters that things that I don't see all the time, because I'm in the CLE world as well, but that motivation as a myth. And I wanted to talk about that because already in talking about your happiness, you were talking about your values and aligning and, you know, what that subjective well-being is for you. So why do we not just need to clock in and clock out of our job? Why do we need happy lawyers? Well, it would be great if being a lawyer really was just about checking in, getting the work done, checking out, and then the rest of your life is your life. Our life as lawyers and mostly as modern day professionals just don't lend themselves to that compartmentalization. Add to that the fact that we're human and the stressors of being a lawyer stay with us mentally and emotionally. So it's not as easy as just clocking out. You're done putting widgets together and then you walk away. There's the demands of the work, but there's also the psychological mental burden that you then have to cope with. It would be nice if that were the case, but just realistically, it's not on a practical or an emotional sense. So then a lawyer's happiness or well-being is tied to how well they're going to feel and work. A depressed lawyer, an anxious lawyer, a lawyer who's burnt out, a lawyer who does not have an opportunity to release and process that stress appropriately, a lawyer who doesn't have an opportunity to feel like they're living a life outside of the practice of law, is a lawyer whose performance is at risk for being impaired. Not because they're malicious, not because they're not good at their jobs, but because they have human brains that need to be able to function at a very high level within the profession. And those brains are handicapped, if you will, when they're under the level of intense stress and demands that the average lawyer is day in, day out, year after year. So a happy lawyer is really important. Definitely. I remember at points in my career where I had fantasies of just being able to press one key on the computer over and over because my (laughs) brain was at that maximum capacity. I think Chelsea said something so important talking about what stress does to our brain. But I think the opposite side of the same coin is what positivity can do for our brain. So that's kind of, we almost use, I almost use the terms happiness and positivity analogously in a lot of ways. As lawyers, can't flip a switch and just like not be a lawyer. You know, you're a lawyer 24-7, and ethically, you're a lawyer 24-7. The challenge, I think, for so many lawyers is to be able to turn off lawyer thinking. You know, we, we carry around a lot of what it means to be a lawyer with us all the time. And thinking like a lawyer, you know, when you go to law school, they teach you to think like a lawyer. What does that mean? It means spotting issues, working out worst case scenarios, dealing with problems and challenges all the time. And those skills are vital, important to being a lawyer. I can't underscore that enough. At the same time, they are not the same skills that are going to serve you in conversations with your loved ones and friends and family. If you're always spotting issues and looking for worst case scenarios, to the extent that you can take off your lawyer hat when you're not actually advocating for your client, the more effective you can be as a human. Now, to talk just a moment about the difference between how negativity can impact your emotions in your brain. Positivity also impacts your emotions in your brain. And there is a lot of neuroscience and research that tells us that when our brains are in a positive 
state of mind, we think better. We are more creative. We are better at analyzing facts. We are more open to different solutions and creative solutions to problems. One study actually looked at our vision. You know, our peripheral vision expands after we have been exposed to images that create happy emotions in us. And just as our peripheral vision expands and we see more clearly, literally, positivity allows us to see more clearly and more widely figuratively as well in our thinking process. So it being positive has so many benefits, not only to our life as human beings, but to our brains when we're working as lawyers. I thought the research was so interesting. And in a lot of our CLEs, we talk about you know, lawyers being high on the negativity bias, like you were just saying, it's critical to our job. It's critical to our job. When I used to get a case and I was analyzing, I had to look for where are we going to get killed? Where are our loopholes? You know, where are the problems that I'm going to need to shore up? So how, as a lawyer, do we harness the positive mindset, but not lose that kind of killer edge that we get from the negativity bias that we need to do our job? How do we kind of hold that tension? An awareness, the role that one's thoughts are playing is is critical for that. This is where we would start like a separate sub conversation about the benefits of mindfulness and meditation and so on and so forth. But back to the point at hand, having an awareness of how our thoughts are impacting our behaviors is really critical. In the example that you just provided with, I need these skills. How can I make sure I'm using them where they need to be used and I'm not using them elsewhere? Mm -hmm. The individual who is aware that the catastrophizing, negative thinking, however you want to put it, is serving a purpose and that they're engaging in that kind of thinking. And if that purpose is aligned with their goals is doing great in a professional setting, they take awareness and put it into their personal lives and especially into their internal dialogue with themselves, about themselves, about their roles in the world, then that awareness is going to allow them to catch themselves to be like, oh, wait a second, I'm catastrophizing. Is this actually based on facts or is this based on my default mode of operation? Or if we want to get more psychological here, like prior experiences, emotional assumptions, things like that. So that awareness is going to one, strengthen those skills in your professional life and two, allow you to choose when those skills are actually going to be useful and not useful to you. So then you can say, well, how do I become more aware of this? This is just how I operate. My thoughts are my thoughts and these are my reactions. And that's where, Nora, since you're more the mindfulness expert here, I'll pass the baton on to you. That's where a a practice of raising awareness, and there's a variety of ways of doing it. The one that happens to have been in the news for the past few years is mindfulness, allows us to one, become aware those default modes of operation that are always at play in our brains. And once we become aware, we give ourselves an opportunity to implement practices that create that opportunity for us to choose the not so helpful time to use a certain skill and the helpful time to use the skill. But I defer to Nora. Again, can't agree more. It's all about awareness, being aware of our thoughts. And for the most of the time, we're not aware of what's going on in our head. There's always voices up there talking. They never stop usually, but we're not really aware often of what we're thinking or how we're feeling. And yes, 
mindfulness can help in that regard because it is all about increasing our self-awareness. And it's a very uh, trendy word right now, has been for a while. And for some people, it's an off-putting concept. So, uh, you know, I recommend that you kind of think about a mindfulness or a meditation practice as training your brain. That's really what you're doing. You're using your brain to change your mind and be able to control the thoughts in your head. You become aware of the thoughts that you're having and you notice them. And once you are aware, you can begin to make some conscious choices about those thoughts and the emotions that you're feeling. And yes, there is a lesson in this book about that very topic. And it's called The One Thing That Can Change Everything. It's lesson eight. When lawyers come to me or go to Chelsea, they want something to change. And in order to change, you have to know where you are now. The lesson about mindfulness in this book contains a quote. They all have a quote at the top of every lesson. And the one at the top of that lesson is from a wonderful poet named David White. And it says, all things change when we do. When we can begin to change and notice our own emotions and thoughts, we begin to notice that everything around us changes because our perspective of those things changes. Yeah, the perspective. I love talking about that. I experienced that in real time at one point in my life. I was in a specific job. I was having a lot of stressors, wasn't feeling fulfilled, X, Y, Z, left that job, had some life experience, came back, loved the same job, and nothing changed. The client didn't change. The job task didn't change. Literally nothing but my perspective on it. So it's incredible how powerful that shift in perspective can be. And I think a lot of things that you're talking about really lead to another buzzword we hear, but so important when you dedicated a chapter to it, but resilient, being able to not break under a lot of the hardships and just major stressors we have in this job. I don't think anybody mentions attorney and lawyer and thinks, oh, that sounds like a pretty chill, peaceful, <laughs> peaceful role. So it's definitely something we need to stay in this job because it's a marathon, not a sprint for sure. I'd love to hear about how we can cultivate resilience in our daily work life and specifically about the difference between collaboration and continual interference. Yes, resilience is a buzzword. And yes, there are things we can do throughout the workday, every day to help increase our level of resilience. So what are we talking about when we're talking about resilience? Essentially, if you were to look up the definition in the dictionary, it is the ability of something to, when squeezed, retain its form. You can think of the term bouncing back, like when you squeeze a sponge and it bounces back. But again, research, neuroscience tell us that as humans, we are better than sponges. And with continual, consistent work, we can bounce back better than a sponge. We can actually come back from a challenging situation better than we were when we went into that challenging situation. All of these things take time I'm going to pause here and just say this for a moment because I don't want anyone to listen to this podcast and go, oh, this is a book full of quick fixes and I can just go do this one thing and bang, we're going to have some change immediately. A life from my perspective doesn't work that way. The way that real change happens in our lives is in small increments, one day at a time, very consistently and sometimes imperceptible steps that you may not even notice in the moment. But when you look back, 
you realize that you're not the same person that you were. Your approach to problems and difficult emotions and things of that nature is, is very different than it might have been before. What can you do? Resilience is a skill that you can develop. There are things throughout the day that you can do to, to develop that particular skill. I'm not going to go through all of them. I want to let Chelsea speak to this issue as well. But I think one of the most important things that you can do is to understand that distinction between collaboration and continual interference and develop focus times throughout your day where you can work in an uninterrupted fashion. And by that, I mean safe from what I would refer to as needless interruptions. Many lawyers work throughout the day with a, quote, open door policy where they just let folks come in and talk to them and ask them questions. And dealing with constant interruptions all day long is incredibly ineffective because it diminishes your ability to concentrate and ability to focus. It increases the level of mistakes that you might make, all of those kinds of things. Collaboration looks more toward creating times in the day when you can actually answer those questions from the people around you that need to ask you questions, that need to have access to you. So developing uninterrupted focus time throughout the day is critical, even if it's in a really small increment. And by really small, I'm talking about less than a half an hour. There is a strategy called the Pomodoro Technique that we may touch on briefly in the book, but if you're not familiar with it, Google it, Pomodoro like tomato, and it essentially asks you to focus 25 minutes of time in an uninterrupted way. And then at the end of that 25 minutes, you get a five minute break. And during that five minute break, you step away from what you're doing and you can either dive in for another 25 minutes or switch gears and do something else in a very focused way for 25 minutes. For those of us that suffer from, you know, either real ADHD or the sense that we have ADHD, working in those small little uninterrupted times can be very effective for us. Totally agree, Nora. Those lawyers who are struggling with ADHD, versions of the Pomodoro method, whether it be strictly Pomodoro or the the prior versions of it, are really helpful because it gives you a choice. Because sometimes we as lawyers, we get really into a particular subject matter or a particular task. And we have these 50 other tasks we need to do, but we got so hooked into one thing that we let everything go by the wayside. And that interruption at 25 minutes or at 45 or at 10, whatever method we happen to be following, allows us to make a choice on whether we're going to continue down that specific rabbit hole or we have to change tasks. So again, it's about setting up our days so that we have choices. Back to the subject of resilience, this also speaks to choice. One of the biggest factors in developing resiliency in a person is their social connections. And what does this exactly mean? It doesn't mean you need to become a social butterfly in order to be resilient. Not at all. What it means is during times that are not crises, you recognize and can invest in developing healthy, reliable relationships, whether that be in the family, friends, your coworkers, whatever it happens to be. Because eventually in anyone's life, but especially in the legal profession, things are going to get tough. And it's those social connections that are going to give us the highest return. It's those social connections that are the biggest predictors on whether or not you're going to be able to bounce back better, to have the resources to, to deal with the crises while the rest of your life continues on. It gives you a choice when the crises hit to be able to lean on others when you need to, because resilience isn't just about the individual. It's about the individual's ability to rely on different resources to overcome a difficult challenge. 
those resources are not just internal, although they are, they're also external. And for lawyers, this element of resilience can be pretty tough, actually, because a lot of us live and practice in very isolated situations. So I find that that is actually one of the harder part. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take intention. There's so much good in what both of you said that I connected to. One, I just got this image when y'all were talking about resilience is bouncing back better, not just returning to an original form. And I cannot remember the name, but that Japanese form of repairing pottery where they glue back. Wabi sabi. Yes. That's what I envisioned in my mind, you know, that those, those like beautiful correction that help us to come back better because we can know we can get through that tough time. I love the focus method. I really struggled. I mean, I had an incredibly busy job with a lot of cases, but I would have to write briefs at times. And I finally figured out that I would have to go home away from the office to write a brief because I would get so many interruptions and I had a hard time blocking off. So I love the 25-minute blocks because it takes some people, myself included, a couple minutes to get in that zone where we can focus on something. And then to have that choice, really like that idea of kind of chunking time so we can have that focus and that choice. And then the relationships, that is really important. And it's something that I think a lot of people give lip service to, but it's really hard. I can imagine I was not in the private law firm sector, but it's not really rewarded to build connections with your colleagues and your coworkers. You can't bill for that. I think it it has gotten more and more isolated, some of those arenas, and I'm glad that the well-being initiative is moving more towards the forefront, and I'm hoping people will start to see the value and the resilience building in creating relationships within the work life and of course beyond as well. And when we were talking earlier about happiness and finding things that were aligning with our values, can you talk about why it's so critically important to look at your values and see if your actions align with your values? I love that you talked about authenticity in here is the measure of disparity between our values and our behaviors. That was really, really poignant. That concept of authenticity has been studied in a study on lawyers by Lawrence Krieger. A few years back, actually, I believe he was a professor at the the Florida State University Law School, and he teamed up with some scientists to try to identify if there was a way to predict lawyer happiness and satisfaction in a legal career. What they found that the data revealed was that there are three factors that can reliably predict whether a lawyer is going to experience happiness and satisfaction in a law career. First and foremost is authenticity. And that's how they discussed authenticity, the disparity between behaviors and values. So that concept of authenticity pairs really well with other totally unrelated studies on human happiness that happened before, elsewhere, and have happened since, which tell us that the greater the disparity between our values and our behaviors, the greater the likelihood of anxiety, depression, 
burnout, and lots of other unhelpful, unhealthy coping mechanisms developing. The lesser the disparity between our values and our behaviors, the lesser the statistical likelihood of developing anxiety, depression, burnout, and other unhealthy coping behaviors. So it's directly linked to our mental health. That is why it's so important. The second category that Krieger's study identified was interconnectedness. Going back to our discussion just a moment ago about social connections. The last one is competence and internal motivation for work, which we can talk about another day. But the authenticity I thought was so important to discuss because here is a study about lawyers showing us how important it is to have that alignment. And it's that importance is reflected in totally unrelated studies. It's almost like the science confirming the science. And I want to make sure to make the point clear here that when we're talking about values, we're not talking about, you know, being Mother Teresa or somebody who's just out there being all altruistic. Not at all. We're talking about values in the sense of what gives meaning to your life. And I love to think about certain lawyers that I've worked with who happen to be litigators. It's not the best. It's not the good fit for everybody. But for some people, it's a really good fit. And for them, an adversarial exchange is life-giving. They're not looking for conflict, but they like that back and forth. And for other people, that's going to be awful. And now, not one passivity versus that adversarial nature, not one is not better than the other, but they certainly play different roles in different people's lives. So it's important to figure out what works for you, because if you are someone who's a passive person and you value passivity, you're not going to love being a litigator. You just aren't. And if you're someone who really gets a lot of energy out of that back and forth banter and planning case strategy and going to battle, you're not really going to love being a transactional attorney, probably. And obviously, these are very simple examples, but they are examples that I have seen play out in real life with how important it is for the actions that we engage in on a regular basis to be aligned with what actually gives our life some meaning. I mean, the science is there to back it up. We're so hardwired differently that I can see the difference just in my two kids. One is constantly scanning, like looking for a fresh audience to perform for. And the other just is exhausted by human beings. You know, she'd rather go play with dogs. And we are so hardwired differently and we have these different values. And I don't know which of you would like to talk about. I really liked the practice that you had at the end of that to kind of figure out where your personal values were and how to see if your actions were aligning with them. Well, that actually is an exercise that we do in psychotherapy pretty regularly. It's a simple values exercise. And we provided a short list there. Some versions of this exercise actually have four or 500 words on them just to get the brain going. But it's important because to to have a tool like that, because for most of us, somebody stands there and asks us to say our values. And we're like either grasping at some word because we don't know what the values words are, or we just give a rote answer because we know what they should be. When we're challenged by a list that's in front of us and the limits in the exercise, which is five to seven, then we are forced to really evaluate what these words mean to us and how they rank against each other. Not because one value is better than another, but because we as humans, some things are more important to us. That's the point of the exercise here. What is important to you? I'm forcing you to narrow it down so that you have to 
be able to identify something that is important to you. That doesn't mean that you don't have more than five to seven values in your life. Of course you do. But let's figure out what the most impactful ones are. And it's a really simple exercise. You can do it in a matter of minutes. Although a lot of lawyers I've worked with, it's a multi-day exercise where they go through highlighting about 50 words. And then the next day they X off some of them. The next day they get rid of another 10 and very methodical about it. But whether that's you or you're the person who's like, well, yeah, of course, bum, 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 done. You still had to go through some process internally to justify how you were ranking those. It allows you to just focus in. You'd think, why would a simple process of elimination do this for me? But all it's doing is taking the thoughts and feelings you already have and making them more obvious to you. I really liked that practice and I made myself do it before this. And I had creativity, honesty, cooperation, openness, harmony, and authenticity. And I'm going to try that practice to write a couple sentences each day at the end of the day to see if my actions were kind of aligning with those. And how do values interplay with motivation being a myth? Oh, so yeah, we do title something, uh, one of the chapters in there, give up on motivation. Mm -hmm. And find your why. So they both kind of, right? right? We encourage people to give up on motivation because we often associate motivation with doing something when you feel like it, right? So in the clinical sciences, we identify the need to wait to do something until you feel like it as problematic because then you're relying on feelings that you don't have control over. Feelings are not something we control. We can influence them, right? Our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors are connected but they're not something we can just change and then feel better about something and feel motivated. We can't rely on feeling motivated in order to get things done. What's much more powerful are what your true motivating factors are in your life. You might wake up and not feel like going to work, but you value, going back to our conversation just a moment ago and the exercise behind the know your why you and these are just hypothetical examples you might value having a steady paycheck so you can take care of your family so you go anyway you value the the impact of the project you're working on because you know that it's important for you to serve your clients in this life-changing way you value being there for your boss who might be going through a crisis because you value that relationship with your boss you're going to pick up the slack that they can't at the moment you don't want to go in there you don't want to deal with it you don't feel motivated to write whatever you write but this bigger purpose that's important to you that's the drive you cannot feel like it and do it anyway because of something else that's bigger, more important to you, aka the values. And you know what Chelsea's talking about, just in terms of everything kind of circling back around in the lessons in this book, is just talking about reframing this thing that I'm going to do to be consistent with my why, my purpose as a driver, if you will. And that concept comes right back around to how to build and cultivate resilience by reframing our attitude around things. I read a book once, he's not quoted in this particular book, but one way to really strengthen your brain is to do that thing that you don't necessarily want to do. Eat that frog. Do that thing that you don't want to do to to move you past being stuck. I think in listening to Chelsea talk, all of these concepts 
are related in one way or another to each other. And as you practice one, you're influencing another, almost like pulling up a rubber band. If you pull up the middle of a rubber band, you're pulling up that middle thing that you're focusing on. But the rest of that rubber band is slightly elevated too. So as you work on any one of these particular lessons, you may be affecting other lessons in this book by how you're thinking and what you're doing. And in that vein, something that I have not been doing, and I have been in fact chastising my older daughter for doing, I love that you had a chapter on this because I had to eat my words. My older daughter moves at a sloth pace in the morning, and she claims that she has to spend five to 10 minutes stretching. And I'm always on her about just get out of bed. It's time to go. And then, of course, I saw your chapter on stretching, and she was you know, very much gloating. So can you tell me why I have been so wrong? And it is important to stretch in the morning and other times. Well, it feels good, number one. You know, when we are sleeping at night, our bodies and our brains can be very busy. Our brain is very busy flushing toxins and doing other work while we're sleeping. But if we've had a stressful day or a tense when we're sleeping, we may wake up feeling sore. Our organs are resting while we're sleeping, so the blood flow throughout our body is slowed down. By stretching first thing in the morning, we get more blood to our brain. It helps us wake up, and it feels good. Stretching, in addition to increasing your blood flow and getting your muscles moving, it increases the level of endorphins in your body. Dopamine and serotonin kind of can get you moving in the morning. And as little as three to five minutes of stretching built into your morning routine can help you to see and feel the effects of what stretching can do for you. And many of us don't do it. And quite honestly, I didn't do it until (laughs) we wrote this lesson in the book. And I went, wow, I should be doing this every day. One of the things that I do, maybe other people can use this as a little trick or a hack. When I want to do something that kind of adds something to my routine, What I typically do is I time how long it's going to take me to actually do that thing that I want to do. I tried this years ago when I decided I wanted to floss my teeth. And when I timed myself doing this thing that I didn't want to do, I was like, it took me like a minute. And I thought, well, I know this is really good for me, so I can take a minute to do this. So I timed myself doing a series of stretches in the morning. For me, I do about three minutes, but you can do a lot of stretching in three minutes. And that's the first thing I do when my feet hit the ground in the morning. I go through my series of stretches and a couple little strength exercises as well before I floss my teeth and do other things. That's a great example (laughs) of purpose versus motivation. You're not motivated to it, but you can connect to the thing that matters to you most, your health. We're lawyers, right? We're so wired. Like, how long is this going to take? Is this 0.10? I don't know. You don't want to do it for whatever reason. Time yourself and then ask yourself, is it worth X minutes of my time to do this thing every day that is going to have a huge payoff throughout the rest of my life? Because the things we're doing right now are creating our life. I love that. And I could talk to you guys for six more hours, at least. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I really, really encourage everyone to go buy this book, 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers. And thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. This has been fun. Thank you, Candace. It has been tremendous fun. Thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. 
If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two. Subscribe to our newsletter and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.